You're listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, and I'm your host, Deirdre Morrison. I'll be sharing some bite-sized brain science, thought-provoking questions, and mind-bending ideas about how our brains work, change, learn, and adapt, and how we can use the knowledge emerging from the field of neuroscience to open up new possibilities and make the progress we want in all areas of our lives. Hey there, and welcome to today's episode of the Ambition Incubator podcast. In this episode, I'm going to talk about some of the things that we do without even realizing that help us navigate the world on the one hand, but also shape the world we inhabit on the other. Sound weird? Yes, it is. Okay, buckle up. This stuff is fun. Today, we're going to talk about something called mirroring, which is incredibly difficult to say sometimes. But mirroring is this weird thing that we do. It's sort of a way of understanding other people and also of connecting with them. Mirroring serves a number of functions that we know of. It helps us to empathize and connect with people that we're talking to. It helps us to understand what someone is thinking or feeling, and it allows us to gauge their intent. And understanding a little about mirroring helps us to pay more attention to it. For instance, whether we're doing it ourselves or whether the person we're communicating with is doing it and how each of us is using it. Now, mirroring isn't the same as mimicking or copying like a little kid might or the way someone does when they're trying to learn a new dance routine. And a lot of the time we mirror those around us without without even thinking about it. And some of it happens instinctively. Now, you might have heard about some studies of what's known as mirror neurons. And at the moment, they are telling us that these are cells in the brain that register activity, both when the subject is engaged in an activity themselves and when they see another doing it. Now, this has mostly been observed in monkeys, and there's a lot of work still ongoing about this and a lot of debate about what's happening and what it all means. But for our purposes today, we don't really need to worry too much about the ins and outs of that. We can explore while the debate continues and still find value in it. This is the great thing about knowing that you're on an infinite journey. We never have to accept our current data set as the final one. There are always more possibilities and always options to enhance our store of knowledge and perspective and understanding, even as the scientists continue to do their thing at the frontier of what it means to be human. Now, there are certain things we do reflexively that mirror others. Think about contagious yawning or how if someone smiles at us, we tend to smile back or how our body posture starts to mimic that of someone when we're engrossed in conversation with them. Or what about this crazy example? Apparently, and (laughs) this is where I probably fail whatever tests there are for being a woman, or at least for being a woman eligible for this study. Apparently, when women move to a new city, they copy the heel height of the women they see as more affluent. Now, the researchers on the team conducting this study call this type of mirroring trickle-down conformity. That is, they're saying that people try to conform to the end of the fashion spectrum that they see being worn by those with affluence that they want for themselves. The article, which I'll link to in the notes, also observes that cheap high street retailers closely follow the output of high-end fashion designers in Paris, for example, but they ignore the chain stores with new collections coming out on average uh, Pret-a-Porter stuff. But going back again to the one-on-one aspect of this phenomenon, where we're sitting or standing with someone, talking or engaging or dancing, it's like our consciousness connects with the other persons and we start to sync up. But why? Why would we do that? What's the function of this behavior? And can we learn to use it more mindfully? 
These are all good questions, but here's another one for you. When you're walking down the street, what expression do you normally wear? Is it neutral? Is it focused? Is it angry? <laughs> do you smile as you walk along? And if you're a smiler, is it a little Mona Lisa smile or is it a full toothy grin? Now, you might very reasonably tell me that, well, that depends on the mood that I'm in or what I'm doing at the time. But here's the question. What do you notice about other people's expressions? Do you pay any attention to them? Are you more likely to pick out someone who looks happy or someone who looks angry? And do you tend to make eye contact? Now, I know I'm way over my question quota for a short exploration like this already, but these are all interesting things to think about. Let's say, for example, that more often than not, you walk around with at least half a smile on your face. Do people often smile back? Are people more or less prepared to make eye contact with you when you look happy? What about on a day when you know you look worried or stressed or sad? What happens then? Does the number of casual smiles you get go up or down? I've got a friend who tells me that where she grew up, if you walked around with a smile on your face, you were considered crazy by the prevailing culture. And it's true that the physical expression of emotional states isn't universal. So cultural differences may play into this, depending on when and where you grew up. But here, where I am, I generally find that people are more willing to make eye contact with someone they see as happy and relaxed. The smile is often returned, regardless of what their expression had been before. They may even greet me. So maybe it's that they think I'm smiling because I recognize them and they're scrabbling through their internal file effects to work out who I am and just smile not to be rude. But I don't think that's often the case because I'd be able to see the nuance of panic in that sort of smile. Oh my gosh, do I know her? What if she talks to me? I can't remember who she is. You know, that sort of reaction. We've all had it at one stage. And this is an interesting point too. Why is this though? Jane McGonigal, who for some reason I keep wanting to call Susan, writes about mirroring in her book, Super Better. Now I've referred to that many times. It's definitely worth a read. And she says that mirroring is a way for us to get an understanding of what the other person is thinking. Her example was being smiled at by a stranger in a bar. She reckons that instinctively we'll flash the same kind of smile back at them. But why would we do that? She says that we do that in order to understand the intent behind the smile. When we replicate the expression on the other person's face, we very quickly understand whether they are friend or foe, basically. In the same way as I would be able to identify the minor panic of someone who was trying to remember my name if they thought I was smiling because I'd recognise them. We know these things because we've done them ourselves. We can remember the feeling that we had the last time we did that. Of course, it's known that emotional expression is not universal. And the way that someone might look if they were happy to see you in one culture could look totally different for someone from another place or background. In my experience, though, mirroring goes further than just facial expressions. We come to things bringing a certain level of attention, focus and energy. And one way of saying this is what you put into it, you'll get out of it. Whether we contribute to or deplete the energy of a group or event is something that we may not always be aware of, but it's certainly worth taking time to understand. Have you ever experienced someone with a dominant personal energy, and be that a productive or destructive type of energy, but someone like that who could walk into a room and change the whole mood of the place? <laughs> Anyone with a level five teenager in the house will know what I mean as well. And of course, we all know people who can light up a room when they walk in. And again, we've probably heard people talking about mood hoovers or energy vampires. And these things can be as contagious as yawning. So who we show up as in a group or in our business or personal lives will reflect that. 
we sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously shift the energy of the group. Think of this in terms of an inspiring leader, for example. They bring a positive energy to the room and we in turn respond by meeting their energy. On the other hand, a domineering boss whose authoritarianism has everyone quaking in their boots will probably not inspire the troops to be their best selves, at least not for long. And if we stop to ask ourselves what we're really bringing to the activity we're currently involved in, we can start to ask ourselves, for example, if we're feeling tired or stressed. What role am I playing in the group and how would my tiredness or stress affect that? This is where we can start to see why self-care is a responsibility and not an accessory. If we're showing up to our work or personal lives with that as our forward face, that stress and that anxiety and that tiredness, then it's unlikely that we're going to be our best or help others to be their best. Or we might be bringing beliefs or predictions based on past experience. For example, I hated this event the last time I was here and it's probably going to be just as bad this time. And you can contrast that with something like, oh, I really enjoyed meeting this team before, so I'm totally looking forward to today. Neither of those things are based on the event itself. They're based on our prediction of the event. And it does make a difference how we go into things, how we prepare for them in our thoughts. Our brains don't really do very well in telling the difference between real events and when we're just thinking about them, believe it or not. For instance, did you know about the holiday departure syndrome? Well, that's that's not really what it, it's called. I made that up. But the phenomenon is real and it applies to a lot of things. Generally speaking, people are happiest about a holiday as they look forward to it. Their happiness dips while they are on holiday, not necessarily by a lot, but it is noticeable. Think about also things like how children are with Christmas or birthdays. Part of this is down to how we imagine things might be. We create a wonderful rosy view of these things. And those expectations remain intact until the event comes around. Just thinking about taking a holiday, for example, can increase our happiness. But this, of course, depends on how we think about it, what level of immersion we allow ourselves. Sitting and visualizing our ideal break, imagining the sights and sounds and emotions, this level of thinking about it will probably help us, whereas a distracted half thought probably won't. And this is another important point. Are we still distracted by other things instead of being consciously present wherever we go or whatever we're doing? I mean, chances are that right now you're multitasking. You're probably doing something else, maybe driving or walking or, I don't know, <laughs> cooking dinner, something else entirely as you listen to this. And that's just something we've come to accept in today's world. We're always on. And it's not just that we're always on. We're almost always on multiple things. But let's come back to mirroring from a different direction for a minute. We know that social proof works. Uh, if you've ever sold anything or if you've ever marketed anything, whether it's a product or a service, you'll know about this. We're far more likely to buy or subscribe to something if we can see that others have done so. I guess this makes sense from an evolutionary point of view. You can imagine our ancestors going, hey, those guys at those berries over there and they're fine. So I guess I can do it, too. Or alternatively, those guys over there look like they're really enjoying those berries and I don't want to miss out on that fruity berry action. So there you have the earliest known case of FOMO, I guess. <laughs> and on the flip side of this, of course, business owners really freak out and fret over the idea of bad reviews as well, because this too affects other people's perceptions and decisions, right? They don't want to get caught by something that was bad for somebody else. So 
Let's say we are influenced by what others do as a form of social proof. Now, I'm talking about modelling and representation in a way. When we see the achievements of others, we're prompted to have a go ourselves. We can see that it's possible because it has been done. This creates a window in our mind to let the light of an idea or a concept in. It's what's known as the Everest principle. Nobody knew whether Everest was really surmountable before uh, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay did it. But then, of course, once it had been achieved, they realised, yes, this is possible. These guys are only human. That means that I can do it too. And there's also the four minute mile, of course. Again, that was thought to be impossible. But after Roger Bannister did it first, then others very quickly broke through that barrier as well. So without these examples, it may never have happened. Somebody has to do it first. And we mirror those people around us. The models that we see represent our various possibilities, our parents, our friends, our colleagues. And to quote one of my favourite concepts from the scientist Richard Boyatzas, if you don't know you're in a box, how can you ever get beyond it? Now, I could go down another rabbit hole here about what uh, Martin Seligman, who's the father of positive psychology, termed learned helplessness, or as he now talks about learned optimism. But you know what, I think I'll, I'll stick a pin in that and come back to it sometime. So getting back on track to energy and mirroring, assuming that we're now aware of our energetic contribution, is there something that we can do to optimize that contribution? And are there ways to protect ourselves from energetic drain? A while back, I posted in a business group asking people to comment with the most interesting thing that they'd learned about themselves in their journey as entrepreneurs. And so lots and lots of people were posting really interesting things about how they discovered that they were capable of so much more than they originally thought. Um, there was loads of positive things, loads of provoking things. And then this guy who maybe hadn't quite read the original post piped up with a mini rant saying that what he had learned was that nobody wanted to do a day's work. Now, this was <laughs> in the face of a very long thread about people saying how hard they worked, how creative they were, how much they loved their business. But he was like, no, no one wants to do a day's work. So I really thought he was joking. I mean, the evidence that people did work was right there in front of him. But he was in his energy place and it wasn't really that good. And it's at times like this that we have to remember that the energy we put out won't always be met, especially in the digital realm. It's a bit of a minefield, really. And Erica Dewan makes some interesting points about this in her new book, Body Language in the Digital Age. And this includes things that I had never really thought about, like um, how using using proper grammar and text can be perceived by people who are either what she calls digital natives or non-digital natives. I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not sure she had maybe another term for the, the latter group, which would be people who did not grow up with as much technology as kids grow up with now. Another thing that we need to be aware of is that if we're carrying a depleting load such as stress or sadness, but hiding it well, others won't easily pick up on it. We tend to assume that others can see through us, that they can see it because we can feel it. But this isn't the case. So in order to make sure that the mirror doesn't backfire, we need to ask how we can communicate those needs and expectations better. Even those closest to us can get it wrong. So while this started out about mirroring and how fascinating it is as a behaviour, we've somehow ended up at self-care and how important that is for our energy. 
for that thing that helps us connect with and be a leader or an effective collaborator with others. In some ways, our energy is paper thin, but folded paper is remarkably strong. So making sure that we understand the various layers of self-care and how important they are to our individual balance is really important. And we can take note of this with a simple journaling tool, which I'll put a link to in the comments as well. And I'm going to close with a reference to a book that was a formative part of my early reading, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. In it, human thought is considered like an invasive species. And in some ways, this is pretty true. Our energy is catching. It's a superpower that we can use wisely or we can waste. Now, I don't know, (laughs) but people do smile at me quite a lot. And maybe that's because I'm smiling too. All right, look, I will put, there's so many show notes today. There's loads and loads of resources to um, dive into in there if you want more information. And of course, you can always reach out to me over on LinkedIn or on the Facebook page. And if you enjoy this episode, let me know. I would love to hear from you. Bye. You've been listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, your weekly source for brain science tools, tips and techniques. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. It's why I want to make sure that every single episode contains game changers with the potential to elevate your performance and enjoyment to the next level in all areas of life. If you want to catch up between shows, check the show notes for my links. Meanwhile, if you hit subscribe right now, you'll always be first to hear when the next episode is available. Until then, my friend, imagine the possibilities.